continue in our study on the subject, put not your trust in princes. People have always sought to solve their problem of sin by constructing entities which they hope will institutionalize their safety, happiness, peace, and righteousness. But in the end, such human powers and organizations cannot rescue us from the consequence of our sin. Samuel warned Israel of the danger of seeking after a king, but Israel would not listen to his warnings. In seeking to avoid the consequences of our sin, we rebel against God's reign over us. But God's judgment will still fall upon us, whether we have a king or not. Samuel warned Israel that if it continued to rebel against God, he would consume both the people and their king. This promise overthrows all the hopes of mankind for a secular solution to the problem of sin. Kings cannot save us from the judgment of God for our sin. Surely the most tragic example of this truth is found in the story of good King Josiah. He discovered halfway through his reign that Judah had totally failed to obey God's law. God informed him that Judah surely would not escape his judgment for its wickedness. No matter what desperate steps Josiah took towards reformation of the people, Josiah was recorded as the most obedient king since David. He sought mightily to save his nation and his people by purging the land of idolatry and sexual deviance and barbarous pagan practices. His people had even ceased to celebrate the Passover by which God had redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. They had utterly failed to remember the Passover lamb by whose shed blood they were rescued from the divine wrath that destroyed all the firstborn sons. Josiah restored the celebration of the Passover, which points to God's Lamb, our Lord Jesus, whose blood saves from eternal wrath for all who trust in Him. But Josiah could not take away the sin of Israel, which God must judge. No amount of reform and restored law-keeping and animal sacrifices could blot out their crimes against God. That's because the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sin. Josiah could not undo the sins of his people. He could not make an atonement for those sins. In the end, Josiah died defending his country, but his death had no salvific effect at all. But our good King Jesus is far and above greater than good King Josiah. Listen to the crucial difference. The people's sins destroyed both themselves and their kings. But our sins destroy neither us nor our King Jesus. It is precisely because their sacrifices could never take away their sins that ultimately their sins destroyed them, both themselves and their kings. But one day John the Baptist looked up and saw our Lord Jesus walking down the road and he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God. Think of it. In all the sorry, sad history of mankind, never before that glorious day had any person ever laid eyes upon a lamb that could save us from our sin. Countless millions of lambs had been sacrificed, but none was ever found that could save us. As far as that dreadful curse of the law that Josiah feared but could not escape, our Lord Jesus satisfied, canceled, and nullified it against us. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, the Apostle Paul proclaimed. 
Some might say that what we needed is a king that could be destroyed in the place of his people and not with them in their sin. In a sense, our King Jesus was destroyed in the place of his people for our sin, and yet in the end, he wasn't destroyed either. No, Christ rose again in power and glory and rejoicing, and he will surely raise up his people one day as well. The more accurate description is this, rather than being destroyed like his people, our Savior by his sacrifice and mighty resurrection power changes his people to be like him in holiness, righteousness, and everlasting life. As the Apostle Paul preached to the Philippians, our Lord Jesus Christ shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, there is now no wrath, no condemnation, no destruction for us or for our glorious saving King. In olden times, the people destroyed themselves and their kings by their own sins, but our King Jesus died for us and rose again and saves Himself and His people from sin and destruction forevermore. Now, we go back to our review of King Saul and how he began well. We pointed out how he was humble. He was prudent in his actions. He did not seek revenge against his political foes. He was brave in the face of danger. And the Lord brought great victory through King Saul. But it was only into the second year of his reign that Saul began to wobble. Began to wobble in his obedience to God's commandments. And as Samuel had warned the nation, it was the fear of the people, that is, the fear that they had, their lack of trust in the Lord to save them, that led to Saul's downfall. And we read of this sad incident in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It says, When he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with him at Michmash and then Mount Bethel and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin and the rest of the people. He sent every man to his tent and Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba and the Philistines heard of it and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal and the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and the people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Bethaven. Now, this little incident shows perhaps a lack of planning, perhaps a lack of good judgment on Saul's part, that if he was about to provoke a war with the Philistines, he shouldn't, as it said in verse 2, have sent the rest of the people back to their homes. Because then, as soon as the Philistines were provoked by Jonathan's attack on the Philistine garrison, why well, he had to call all the people back again. He blew the trumpet, said, let all the Hebrews hear. Remember the last time he blew the trumpet, the people came and a great victory was wrought. And Saul gave credit to the Lord for the victory, you remember? When the people wanted to take vengeance against 
Saul's political opponents. Saul would have none of it, but it was probably a mistake to send the rest of the people home if Saul was going to provoke the Philistines. Perhaps he was overconfident. Perhaps he just didn't think ahead. Or perhaps Jonathan went and did that without proper consultation. We really we really don't know. But in the event, the Philistines were very angry. They gathered a huge force against the people of Israel, far outnumbering the men that Saul had. But Israel was afraid. This made Israel afraid that there was all these chariots and horsemen and a multitude of enemy like the sand on the seashore. And so they ran away. They started to flee, to hide, to some of them even crossed over the River Jordan to the other side to obtain their own personal safety from the coming wrath of the Philistines. We read in verses 6 and 7, And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So there was great fear of their enemies, the Philistines. Great fear. Now you remember that in the previous instance when the king of Ammon, the king of the Ammonites was threatening to gouge out all the right eyes of the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And surely the Ammonite armies and military were fearsome that the people weren't afraid at all. Why, they charged right after their king and went over there and took care of business, didn't they? And of course, the Lord was the reason that they had prevailed, but they forgot about all that, didn't they? They forgot that the Lord was their stronghold and their defense and that the king was just his designated leader. You see, but they had insisted on the king to fight their battles. Now they had one. Yet all their confidence drained away as if they were blanched in a moment of their confidence. And they were not trusting in the power of God to deliver them this time as they had apparently the last time. And so Saul began to be troubled because his his army was slowly dwindling down as people deserted, as his men deserted him. And we see in verse 8 this tragic turn. He tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed, but Samuel came not to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So the people were leaving. His forces were diminishing rapidly because of fear, because of their lack of trust in God, and they didn't even trust King Saul to know what to do. Saul was losing the people out of fear. He couldn't wait any longer for Samuel to offer, to come and make an offering and bless the people. And so he broke God's law and intruded into the holy office of the priest, which kings ought not to do. And in verse 9, we see, And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So Saul went ahead and offered a sacrifice when he was supposed to wait for Samuel, who had promised to be there, to offer that sacrifice. 
down. The first thing Samuel does when he shows up as soon as Saul is finished making the offering is to ask Saul, what have you done? What have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore I said the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. So see, Saul knew he had done wrong because of the way he couched his excuse. I forced myself. Oh, you forced yourself to break God's commandments because the people were scattered and you were afraid you were going to lose them all? And you didn't want to face the Philistines without having had these offerings made? I had not made supplication unto the Lord? Saul could have prayed, couldn't he? There wasn't any law against praying to God for a rescue, was there? He could have made supplication to the Lord. He could have called upon the Lord for help. He could have had the whole people call upon the Lord for help. But no, you see, Saul needed the support of the religious ritual to calm the troops. It wasn't enough just to pray. They had to have a sacrifice. They had to have an offering to make it look right, to make it look good, to uphold the hearts, the fainting hearts of the people. One can wonder how often such nonsense is used for political purposes these days. That people will invoke God's name and they will assure us of God's blessing and talk about how righteous our cause is and on and on and on. In the olden days, of course, there would be church services and there would be a mishmash of patriotic and spiritual songs sung in order to buck up the spirits of the people, especially of the soldiers. The invocation of God's favor on our own feeble enterprises, much less, much worse, on wicked enterprises. Because it's what the people expect and it becomes nothing more than a political manipulation. You see, in the name of religion and of appealing to God's power and mercy and help, in the end, it becomes transformed into a political act by the rulers in order to manipulate uh, the people. And so Samuel rebukes Saul for this in verses 13 and 14. Samuel said unto Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which He commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Notice, first of all, that he was foolish. He had made a foolish decision. And secondly, they did not kept God's commandment. This was the commandment that ordained that no one was to make any sacrifice except at the hand of the priest which God had ordained. So this was the great test of God on Saul that Saul failed. And that was, to focus it down very acutely, that he could not withstand the fear of the people and the fear that he had of losing the mass of the people if he were to obey God's commandment and restrain himself 
from violating God's law. In other words, if he kept God's law, he would lose his people. And he couldn't win a battle if he didn't have people, right? I mean, he didn't take into account that God is able to save by many or by few. The test was, would he obey God in the face of the rejection and abandonment of men? And the answer was, no, he wouldn't. He forced himself. He saw the people leaving. And this is just the root of the failure of our leaders and institutions. If we do what is right, we will lose the people. We will lose all our support amongst the people. We will lose all our donations from the people. We will lose all of our voters if we do what's right. So we have to calibrate what we do, our institutions, our rulers, and so forth. Calibrate it very carefully. Not based on what's right and honorable and just and godly, but rather based upon what the people will put up with, what they will tolerate, what they expect, what they desire. The test that Saul failed here is repeated constantly in all of our human institutions, our human leadership. You see here how it is that the people's fear and loss of heart, loss of trust in God, you see, leads the king into sin. And so as Samuel said, if the people do wickedly, God will consume both them and their king. There is a sympathetic resonance, you see, between the sin of the people and the sin of the king. The sin of the people and the sin of their institutions which they have set up to rein in the consequences of their sin. So that rather than the institutions, the kings upholding and preserving justice and righteousness and peace, they react and respond to the people's misconduct until both people and king are consumed in judgment. They're like two strings in resonant sympathy with each other. The one starts sin and the other vibrates in sympathy to it. And the sin of the people induces sin in the king. And the sin of the king induces sin in the people. And it gets louder and louder until finally great destruction is brought upon them. The people's sin will consume both them and their king. And I thought as I contemplated these truths, how different is our good King Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't cater to His audience. He was always saying things that offended them. He didn't worry about losing the crowds. He didn't try to say only what the people wanted to hear. Because remember, the people wanted him to set up a physical rule and run out all the Romans and uh, bring in the kingdom of Messiah and give them free food, naturally, and uh, continue to heal them and raise people from the dead. All that was fine with the people. They loved that, but they didn't want what Christ came into this world to accomplish the first time, which was to save His people from their sin. You see, we we always want God to save us from other people's sin over there and those people down the street and those people across the ocean. Those people that are sinning against us, but to save us from our own sin, not so much. And you remember that the angel told Joseph that thou shalt call his name Jesus, 
Jehovah saves, for he, that is Jesus, shall save his people from their sin. But it turned out that's not what the people wanted. And Jesus wasn't willing to tailor his message to what the people wanted. We read a few weeks ago that first example where Jesus declined to satisfy the baser wishes of his audience and they turned against him. And it was to set the example or the precedent for the people turning against Christ completely. When they nailed him to the cross in Luke 4 at verse 23, we read before, after he announces that he is come to fulfill the promises of Messiah, then he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself, whatsoever we have heard, done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. In other words, what we really want you to do is to perform some miracles for us, like you did in those other places. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elysius the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, save Naaman the Syrian. Now, this was not a speech calculated to make his audience happy because basically, first of all, he said, no, I'm not going to perform any miracles here because I already know that you're going to reject me. And secondly, notice how in the history of Israel there were times when Israel needed saving, but God sent His prophet to the dirty Gentiles, the lady in Sarapta, the widow in Sarapta, Naaman the Syrian general. But he didn't heal the lepers in Israel and he didn't feed the hungry in Israel. Why did he not perform the works that they craved of him? I think that there are at least two reasons. One was to demonstrate the people's willingness to reject Messiah. You see, they weren't satisfied with his taking on the mantle of these promises of Messiah that he recited from Isaiah to them, that wasn't good enough. They wanted a sign. They always wanted a sign. But when there were signs, they wouldn't believe Him. He was going to demonstrate the people's willingness to reject Messiah and to sort of announce, as it were, to the people by their own misconduct that this would be the way they would treat Messiah in the future. And secondly, to intimate what the prophets had foretold that Messiah would save Jews and Gentiles, that His ministry and kingdom was not limited to Jews only, to people like them only. So what do they do? They All of they in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust Him out of the city and led Him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might cast Him down headlong but He passing through the midst of them went His way. Now you know Jesus knew that's what their response would be, but He did it anyway. You see, the rejection of Christ and His ministry and His teaching and His Gospel and His Messiahship was on a very hair trigger, wasn't it? It was so easy to provoke it. They had anger management issues apparently. 
They were easily stirred up to wrath against the Lord Jesus. Well, that's not what Saul did at all, was it? Here Christ was doing the will of His Father in every meticulous detail. And Jesus knew what their response would be. But He went right ahead and did that anyway for the purposes which His Father had ordained. And you see, He's already losing the crowd, isn't He? He's losing support. And you know how the politicians, we need support from every place. We can get it, don't we? We can't risk fending this little group here and that little group there because this little group here plus that little group there, pretty soon it adds up to a majority. And then we'll lose. But then notice next Christ's teaching about His body and blood. We preached on this several months ago in detail in John chapter 6. Do you remember at the end after He had told them these hard truths, unless you eat My flesh and drink My blood, you shall have no life in you. And we explained what all that meant, what it signified, that it wasn't a command to cannibalism, but rather it was a fulfilling of the metaphor that to spiritually consume the body and blood of Christ, which is done by faith in the promises that He made, that to do that was the very basis of their actual concrete physical and spiritual existence and hope and life and eternal life, that their salvation was tied up in the physical body and blood of Christ which would be offered as the sacrifice, as God's lamb to take away their sin. So after he's taught that, then it says at verse 59 of John 6, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples when they had heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life, but there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray Him. And He said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto Me except it were given unto him of My Father. You see, all this got started when He was explaining to them why they wouldn't believe His promises that whoever came to Him, He would raise up in the last day. And His explanation for why they wouldn't believe His promises was because... No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And here you see again, he says, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Just everybody can't believe Jesus' promises. It takes the Father's work and the Father's will in order for any sinner to come to Christ and to believe Him. These people were offended, but Jesus didn't back down. Nor does He walk back His startling teaching. Instead, He proclaims the doctrine of election by God of the people who will believe. It's not in your own selves. It's not in your own self-generated faith. Because if God doesn't draw you to Me, if the Father doesn't draw you to Me, you'll never believe. It's an explanation for why everyone doesn't believe the good news. And we know that today there are folks still offended by Christ's teaching about the sovereign choice of God in whom He will 
bring to Christ. They're still objecting to it. Even in the churches, they're objecting to it. While they have whole ministries dedicated to overthrowing what Jesus clearly teaches in this text. So Jesus knows He's losing followers, doesn't He? At verse 66. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Here Jesus knows that this is not popular teaching and that it's costing Him subscribers or patrons or customers or followers. But Jesus doesn't care, does He? He doesn't trim His message. He doesn't change His tune. He doesn't offer something more palatable. And Jesus even knew that Judas Iscariot would betray Him right there amongst the twelve. And you remember in the end, Judas Iscariot betrayed Him because Jesus insisted He would go to the cross. He would he would be put to death. And Judas figured, well, if there's not going to be any kingdom that I can be the treasurer over, why then I might as well cash out now and get what I can by selling out Messiah to the religious leaders. And so He did. You see, the contrast between Saul's wobble and Christ's constancy is remarkable. It is remarkable how Christ would proclaim the truth in the face of what the people wanted. And then again, Christ proclaims His intention of being put to death and rising again. Matthew 16 at verse 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. He raised again the third day. And Peter rebukes Him. You remember Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him saying, Be it far from Thee, Lord, this shall not be unto Thee. Again, Peter was hoping for that physical kingdom. That great glorious rule. He didn't see any value in Christ laying down His life for His sheep. He didn't understand what the price would be for the redemption of Himself from His sin and from His disobedience. Peter rebukes him. You can't throw away the kingdom, Jesus. See how Peter is like the people of Israel, not trusting in the power of God to save them, but rather insisting that what God's commandment was to the Lord Jesus in His humanity should be broken should be broken to satisfy the desires of His disciples. But Peter was only voicing what the disciples felt, no doubt. But look at what Jesus says. Then He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. But wasn't that Saul's problem? He savored the things that were of men, the desires of men, the fears of men that he needed to violate the things that were of God, the commandments of God, in order to satisfy his dwindling military forces. But Jesus, rather than change his message or capitulate to the desires of Peter and the other disciples, you see, he's ready to rebuke them and to uphold the commandments that his Father had laid upon him. Christ would not violate God's commandment to Him in order to keep His people happy. 
This is because, in hindsight we know, in the long term, had he done so, all of his people would have been lost. All of his people would have been lost if he had listened to Peter and followed after Peter's politically astute advice. Just like what happened to Saul in the end, he lost his people, his kingdom, and his life because he disobeyed God's commandment and tried to keep the people happy in a time of danger and fear. And indeed, the Lord suffered the loss of His people when they forsook Him and fled. Here is the final ending of this sort of sad tale that we read of it in Matthew 26 at verse 47 when Judas came to betray Him and His disciples decided to take matters into their own hands and Peter lopped off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. And then Jesus said unto him, Put away thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hand on me. But all this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. And in another place in John's Gospel that we read this morning at John 18 at verse 7, then asked He of them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. If therefore ye seek Me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which ye spoke of them which thou gavest Me. Have I lost none? You see, here's the irony that the Lord Jesus, unlike Saul, was happy to lose all of His people to have them all flee away when they fled because He intended to lose none of them. Now, Saul was afraid because the people were fleeing from his army. He had to break God's commandment to stop that from happening. But Jesus, quite the opposite, was happy for His people to flee. And he actually said, let these go their way. He was giving them permission as it was to leave Him in His hour of tragedy and of death. Let these go their way. He was ready to lose all of His people because when they fled, when they fled because he intended to lose none of them in the end. Saul was afraid there wouldn't be enough of his people to win victory, but Christ knew there were too many of his people there to win the victory. Saul forgot God can save by many or by few, but Christ knew that in the end God could save only by one. That is Himself, the Lord Jesus. He had to fight the fight alone for us, didn't He? Nobody could help Him. None of His friends could help Him. Christ's disciples all fled so that Christ's promise might be kept. This is the Father's will that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. 
if the Lord's people had not left, if they had prevailed on behalf of Christ, if they had somehow derailed His offering for our sin, if they had been able to stop the murder of Jesus by the religious rulers and the secular rulers of that time and place, then you see there would have been too many of them, wouldn't they? For God to work a victory for us. That's why there had to be only one, the Lord Jesus. That's why He had to be left alone to fulfill the work and the purpose which His Father had laid upon Him. In the end, Jesus, rather than cater to His enemies, drove them over the edge to destroy Him at the cross. We know the great passage in Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter, at verse 61, where the high priest asks Him and said unto Him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy, what think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Christ was obedient unto death. Note the glorious rule that he foretells even as he is condemned. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the majesty and coming in clouds of glory. You see, Jesus didn't need His people in order to save them like Saul thought that He needed His people in order for God to work a victory against the Philistines. All Jesus needed was His enemies. All He needed was the malevolent, deceitful, dishonest, unjust crimes of His enemies to execute the offering of the Lamb that was slain for us on the cross. That's all Jesus needed. And He was sure that wicked mankind was up to the task, wasn't He, of putting the Lord Jesus to death. And they did it for no good reason, but the Lord used it for good to save many people alive. And so He did when Christ was put to death by the wicked people. The Lord Jesus fought that fight alone, you see. Triumphant saints no honor claim. His conquest was their own. Our King is victorious for us already. We didn't contribute anything at all except our sin and our fear and our disobedience. All those we bring to Christ and they're laid upon Him on the cross. And He's punished in our place and for our crimes. And He did not fall into the trap that poor King Saul did of catering to the fears of His people and derailing His own kingdom and His own victory. No, the Lord Jesus is our good King Jesus. He's done all things necessary for the saving of His people and not had to trim His message or His conduct one little bit in order to satisfy the passions of the lost crowd. And around this table, we celebrate how the Lord Jesus delivered up His body and blood as an offering for our sin.
and all those who have put their trust in the body and blood of Jesus as their only hope for forgiveness of sin and for salvation and for everlasting life are invited to partake of this bread and this wine. They point us to the essential physical body and blood of Jesus upon which, by His sacrifice, all of our hope and salvation and joy in the future rest. So I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of our sin. O oh God, our Father, we come to You rejoicing in the blood of Your Son by which our redemption is brought for us. We thank You that He shed that blood for the remission, for the forgiveness of our sin. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But that the Lord Jesus has completely satisfied the demands of the law, even in the shedding of His blood, so that You might be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. And we thank You that He made a propitiation for us by His blood, that You're satisfied and completely satisfied with us for Jesus' sake. That what He did has changed our position from being under wrath and under judgment to being greatly loved and embraced by You as Your adopted children. Oh God, we thank You that Jesus was faithful. We thank You that He wasn't swayed for, swayed by the desires of His people nor by the desires or the fears of His enemies, but that He did what was right in every way that He delighted to do Your will and to be obedient to Your commandments which He fulfilled completely unto the end. And that therefore, we are saved by our King Jesus when no other land, no other nation, no other people could ever be saved ultimately by their kings or their institutions or their leaders. Thank You for this cup that He left us to remind us to celebrate the sacrifice He made. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took that cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 64 in the black book. His be the victor's name who fought the fight alone. Triumphant saints no honor claim. His conquest was their own. By weakness and defeat He won a glorious crown. Trod all our foes beneath His feet by being trodden down. Number 64.